going on? Not much. What's new with you? Anything? No. It's well, that time of the year. Yeah. <clears throat> Close to the holidays. I bought me a little Christmas present. That's kind of new to me. What after, was that? Well, after, I don't know, 20-ish years of using a computer every day, I have switched over. Well, not switched over, but I have purchased my first Mac. And how has that gone so far? Well, it's a learning experience. You've always been a Mac person, at least for a while, haven't you? Uh, I went to the same thing you're going through about five years ago. And now you'd say there's no going back? No. That's what everyone says. Just, I've yet to hear anyone switch from a PC to a Mac and then say, no, i got to go back to a PC. No, and it made it, the, the transition was made easy for me in the fact that um, Windows 10, I think is what uh, had came out at the time. I just bought a new laptop. And it was not a pleasant experience because it was, it's not like any other window. It's, you know, it was made more for something that you had touchscreen and I just bought a standard uh, laptop. I didn't have a touchscreen, so it wasn't one of those dual versions and it was somewhat complicated. Returned it, said, I, I don't want to do this. So that was my kicking off point for going, you know what, I'll just use this as my launch pad for, we're going to try Mac. Had Apple phone since the 3GS iPod Classic, so it has mm-hmm. made sense to stay in the same house. I don't have enough of a pedigree to be one of these people <laughs> that says they are more superior right. because this out of the other. I I do find that I think everybody would agree, and unless there's something changed in the PC world, you don't get all the virusy problems. You don't get all those weird, you know, it's like 16 windows pops up because you right. clicked on the wrong web page or the wrong link. With Mac stuff, it just is, seems to be very stable and smooth. At least. Unless I'm misinformed, I think the first ever virus on a Mac product was uh, just recently. Well, recent to me now. It could have been 10 years ago, but it seems like it wasn't that far. I wonder, you know, besides the fact that it's cost prohibitive, I wonder why people just, some people just refuse to try to try Apple. They, they say they prefer PC or Android or whatever. And I've came, I was kind of like you, I progressed from one to the other. I think I just preferred PC stuff and Android. Just because it was what I was familiar with. I think that's the main reason for everybody. Because I had MP3 player, PC, and I had an Android. My first smartphone was an Android. I think it was a Thunderbolt Lightning or might have been a Motorola product, but I can't. I think it was a Thunderbolt something. Thunderbolt, I think was the name of it. But anyway. But now that I slowly go, I am starting to prefer. There are small things that I, that, that, I miss about PC that I haven't, of course, I've only had it for a few days that I'm having trouble, but just preferring one thing over the other. Right. Besides, and besides um, the cost inhibitance, I mean, I wonder why people prefer one, one over the other. They say more left-brained or artsy people prefer Mac stuff. But, I mean, I would, I would say since I've switched to iPhone, I like it better than my, I guess I've gotten used to it. That's that familiarity thing. I don't know. That'd be a neat experiment. Um. I know uh, one of the podcasts I listened to, one of the guys had done that where he bought a uh, Google phone or one of the other brand phones because he's a Mac user or Apple user and um, took an honest run at it to see, you know, what he thought about it. Um, and he liked some things about it, but, but not everything. And I think most of the time it just boils down to familiarity and what you're used to. You think personal preferences is mostly about familiarity or do you think that there's some kind of something else controlling what you prefer not just computers and macs but anything in general like just 
why do you like hamburgers over hot dogs? Or there's got to be some kind of familiarity thing involved in all of it. But for sure, and I think that's the the age old question of about what makes people different and makes them similar. There's, I'm going to say there's probably more of a mystery or variable X than than we can put our fingerprint on. Is any reading, researching, and questioning I've done about that. I have yet to nail down a pattern and it it's just some, you know, kind of mystical, you know, people have the taste they have and it's not exclusive to this household or that household or this income or that income or any anything because you can find people of every one of those walks of life that has similarities and differences with everything that that they may be different or contrast to. I'm a firm believer in Things are learned, but I do I have I like it evolution. You know, I think evolution happens, and I think a lot of stuff, taste or preference, stems from evolution. But I think that um, you might be born with some type of instinct, and then maybe maybe I mean I don't know. I'm not an expert on passing genes down or whatever, but I think it's you know like you said familiarity. But I, so it makes me wonder. You know, there's some things where you know, across cultures, people all in the same culture like one thing, and there's, you know, a theory behind that, and there's there's facts and studies and all that. But I wonder if, like, you were, say you were to adopt someone um, from a culture far from ours, um, like we're, we're, I guess, you know, Westerners, we're in America. If we were to adopt, you know, somebody from the Far East or something and raise them as our own and start them from the beginning, um, like, you know, most people do, feeding them American-type foods, or, you know, whether it's somebody like, you know, from Africa or wherever that has a diverse, they have a diverse, different diet and things they like and colors and, you know, whatever. If they would still have a tendency to like those things where they're from or would they, would their tastes be more what they were brought up to like? Or, I mean, you probably have to have a larger, you know, population size to do a study like that. Or do you think they would still have some tendency to like where they were from, if that would be in there. I guess it would depend on how much uh, of it's passed down and how much of it is learned. I think the age of the individual would have to play into that a lot. And let's just say for an arbitrary number that we can kind of argue around, we'll call it 12. If by 12 you have a, a fair amount of grounding in you, I know from my experience, uh, being that's in, old, yeah, I would think, yeah, in college and pharmacy school of, of different um, individuals I've met and friends along the way that people that have come from other cultures or other countries, even if they got to that age or they're about that age, they generally could not shake their accent. And it, maybe they mm-hmm. could with some work, but uh, one friend I'm thinking of for sure, I don't. He he was uh, from Iran and uh, didn't move to the States until he was 12. So he has a pretty heavy accent. Uh, obviously, he understands English fine because he's made it through high school and college and even professional school. But um, his, his accent is, is very heavy. And I'm just using that as a sample of kind of those things mm-hmm. that get made into you as far as what you are. And by that point, um, you're on your way towards adulthood. So you've had a lot of experiences with food and taste of a certain culture. Now you shift mm-hmm. to another country where there's going to be a whole different culture and a different uh, way of being a 12-year-old, so to speak, which that, that could even be different in, in our own country from one sector to another. Definitely 12. I mean, that's to, definitely that would fall into, I would agree with all of that. But what, it, what I'm more asking is what if we got him as an infant or what if somebody was... M- 
um, adopted as an infant, do you think they would retain any of that cultural preference for food and colors? And I, I think that's uh, a fresh slate or uh, a piece of clay, meaning that if, at an infant, I think you totally can, you know, mm-hmm. there's no way to test the experiment. Well, they obviously wouldn't have um, accent or anything, right. but I just mean, you know, if you go to Asia, for instance, or, you know, even South America or Mexico, and you just look at the general decor, the bright colors, the things they have, just in general, walking around their areas is way different from the aesthetics that we have here in the West or even in Europe. Of course, that's it's a little different in Russia. They have some more. Russia's kind of like a Asia meets West in right. their culture. It's very much Asian-ish and very much European-ish. Right. But anyway, that aside. I just I don't know if how much would be passed down. I think like, I think all of it is mostly learned. It's what you pick up while you're growing or getting older. I th- I think to just turn the other side of the coin and talk about it for a minute. It, for anybody who has children, um, it was shocking to me at how much that I could see of myself. And I think my wife would agree about herself and, in our, you know, we have two kids, a boy and a girl. And in each of them, when you see, obviously, the physical characteristics, I mean, everybody sees that and people comment to others about their children look like them or look like the wife or whatever. But when you see the mannerisms and different uh, things that they do, now, Perhaps they got that from you because it's a tick or uh, some they sort watched of you right, some sort of affect that you have, and and it becomes uh, that mirroring, which is a lot of how children learn, uh, or for even for that matter, it's how adults. Work. You know, when you take on a new job at a new workplace, most of us mirror. You know, we find somebody that that's a trusted, whether it's mm-hmm. the the boss or the instructor or someone who seems to be level headed about whatever the thing is that you're involved in. And to some degree, you will mirror them as just part of a learning experience. So perhaps the the kids are getting that, you know, those affects or whatever those ticks and habits are just by their mirroring effect of the parents. But I, I wish I could think of an exact example. But as our kids have grown, I have seen. But just things how they uh, process stress. Um, and, and I don't think I process stress and deal with things now the same I did as a child. So if you're talking about an 11 or a 12-year-old or an 8-year-old and how you remember how you experience certain stresses or certain things, just how you experience the stress of study and stuff in school, well, I don't think I necessarily demonstrate those attributes now about anything stressful because I'm not in school and, and, you know, have homework and quizzes and things like they do. But when you see how they react to that and it's like... Those are the exact same ways I remember acting out or dealing with the stress of a test tomorrow or whatever, whereas I'm pretty sure they've not seen me do that just because I haven't had that similar environment. So that probably comes from DNA more than behavioral learn. Right. Do your kids, um, do they like the same stuff you did? Or maybe even, I guess the better way to say, they like the stuff you liked that's still around and available. Let's say like food or whatever. Do they have the... When you were a kid, is their food taste the same as yours was as far as you can remember? Or is it the same as it is now? Like, do they um, like stuff you like now? Fuzz, the new big thing. I think you told me before, your kids love it. I'm like, I, as a they, kid, I don't know if I would have or not. They definitely have a much more dynamic palate than I had as a child. I was a picky eater. Uh, somebody might even say to some degree still that way uh, to a certain portion a day. But they were 
way more experimental in their foods as eight, seven, six, five, four, you know, all the way through those ages where you had a little some say about what you liked and didn't like and not like in the baby terms. But um, there are things that they, that they like that are of their own, and then there are things that they like that may be more like their mother's taste or more like my taste. Uh, and, and that, as I'm sure I would imagine, as anybody with children, they don't always stay the same. Like There are certain things that my kids have as favorites that still stay that way, and then there's been some ways that I've seen them go from what you might call a good eater to being a little bit more picky or certain things. I don't know if that's probably mm. just part of the aging process as, as you're growing as a child. Um, but I, I do think in our general conversation of like, uh, while people are the way they are with their taste, some part of that is inherited that I, it's gotta be, I would think. I, I, yeah. It's I've not never learned. heard of someone going the other way, like going from, um, liking everything to being more picky. Although, I mean, I guess I could see that, but I would see it at a young age. I would think once you're, I don't know, 12 or I don't know, we keep, we use that number. You would seem to broaden your horizons more than narrow them. But I mean, I guess it could go either way. I just guess I've never seen it or even thought about it. Really. I would just assume people would like more and more. And I'm, I wonder if there's something around the time and you know, pre pubertal and through puberty that, you know, you're going through a lot of uh, physical changes. How much of those physical changes, if any, affect your taste buds? You know, I, I, you know, I bet it does. Of all the things you heard. Women, they, they have things, right, yeah. and, and 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 I'm, you know, the main difference between being pregnant and not outside of the baby itself would be the hormones. Mm-hmm. That definitely is going to affect your reward pathway and all that. Do you think? I mean, in the get to the basis of it, what people like and don't like, do you think it's all just based on the reward pathway? I mean, of course, that's what signals your brain and says, "Oh, I like that." But some of the stuff that I've read about just taste and preferences says like, and we know this, like your your taste in everything, whether it's music, food whatever grows over time and this one article i was reading it said it grows in typically um predictable ways like um once you these the regular ways are identified you can predict um how your taste or whatever gets sophisticated kind of like um, i guess the example they used was with music um most people who Start out, you know, it's easy to like a pop song or something that's catchier. Right. You know, and then when you move from like a pop song to, you know, you, you find something else you like that's maybe a little more sophisticated. Um, you go from one, like maybe from rock to jazz, the classical, which ironically, or I don't know if ironic is the right word, is the reverse of how they were <laughs> created in human society. Classical was first and then, right. then jazz. But that does seem to be the most, the pathway for people. And maybe it's because you're exposed to rock first and, you know, you realize it's, it's a little bit closer to jazz. It's kind of the rainbow effect where, you know, you look at a rainbow and we see all these, these different bands of color, but in reality, it's a slow change from one color to the other. Um, and kind of some music's that way. Some, something might be labeled as jazz or whatever, but if you looked at it mathematically or um, just laid it out there, the beats and stuff may be similar to rock um, than that is like R&B or jazz or whatever. And so that's why somebody might like that. Um, and like rock and things, but as you become more and more familiar with those things, you can pick out stuff that you like and your taste can get more sophisticated as you go on. Like, okay, well I like that. And then, so now that you're getting used to that thing, you want more input. So you're like, okay, well now I can listen to more jazz, more, um, technical stuff and then go on to like classical music, which is mostly technical listening. 
I think the, that the reward of uh, that's a pleasing sound to me, or I like the way that tastes, is what reinforces the the next action, the next time you try something different, or the next time you have that same thing, whether that be music or food, and that any of those things that are running on the edge of the rainbow colors, um, if you're kind of a stereotypical person we're talking about in Westerner where you might like pop rock, a jazz song that sounds closest to those might be your gateway drug, if you will, mm-hmm. to getting into jazz. Or I just had another thought. If, if you're watching a, a great television show or movie that uses jazz or some sort of like, even classical jazz, you know, the, the music that's in a lot of the Looney Tunes or Pink Panther, any of those things, if you can also tie another warm and fuzzy, if you will, another memory or something that's rewarding, like the visual uh, stimulation that children get out of cartoons. And now you have that relationship with classical music or jazz. And now you're able to bridge a gap that you may never left that acoustic kind of doldrum of where you were in like, uh, you know, your one safe space of the so- kind of sounds you like, but, Oh wait, there is the pink Panther theme. And that is, that is a type of jazz or what, mm-hmm. or the Grinch. You know, the, any, any of these classic soundtracks, you know, as far as in a, thinking about this sound-wise, anything that creates sort of a jumping-off point or that there was some other reward, and it wasn't itself tied to the music, but that music was part of some other kind of reward, whether it would be a cartoon movie or, a, you know, cartoons themselves. It's like a crossover of positives in your right. memory. Like you might have a food for the first time or something that would not be your typical palette but you had it at uh, a cousin that you had never met before and you get to spend the summer with them or something and that was a great experience mm-hmm. and the taste itself w- was not that oh ah you know thing that really just turned all the dopamine loose in your head but it wasn't something that just made you want to vomit at the same time so you kind of like reliving that experience you get that. right you get you get the experience of being with your you know your friend or your family or whatever whoever that person was the other part of that experience that's a positive that reinforces this thing that then creates this layering effect and i think that's the same i, th- I think that's just an uh, example i guess for this whole kind of uh our way to break apart why people like what they like because of what you're made of with your dna and your experiences and whether that's a simplistic experience of, well, I had a hot dog once, so maybe I'll try a hot dog with chili, or I don't really like the smell of chili. It kind of smells funny, but then I was with my friends, and they all loved the chili, and they taught me into trying it, and lo and behold, I loved it. You know, it, it took the experience to tie it together, not necessarily the food itself. There's a drive, I think. You want familiarity, but you also want tying it back to evolving. Um, you tie it... Like, you want the familiarity, but you also want like novelty or the new experience. I think that has to do with it's better to have a wide nutritional um, base of food. You know, you're gonna you're gonna be a healthier person, or at least theoretically, if you if you have a wider food source to want to try new things, to go out and try those things. Right. Um, it'll make you know you have more nutrients, more vitamins, whatever. So, um, at least evolu- from an evolutionary standpoint. That would make sense to always be seeking some type of novelty. But but what about, what do you think about like um, acquired tastes? Like I don't know anyone who ever drank their first beer and was like, that's delicious. Right. Like everybody's like, ugh. It seems to be that the. Like connoisseurs, for example. The, the, I would say, and I would like to hear anybody 
and argue different because I'd like to hear a different point of view of this because this to me seems rock solid. I see it demonstrated within children and you will see this in aged adults. The most simple tastes tend to be sweet tastes mm -hmm. and they tend to be some of the first tastes that you enjoy and maybe really crave and they are, I almost want to say easy to understand, which is a weird way to think about flavor. But it just, it's just mm -hmm. a real quick, easy into the pleasure center of, oh, ah, this is some sweet. But thinking about some of my best friends and going back to this idea of the individualness of taste and why people have the taste they have, I one good friend I can think of right now who we had over this past weekend who does not prefer sweets. I mean, he does eat them, and right. he does eat things that are within what you would call the sweet realm. But he's definitely not a sweet person. He's more of a salty, savory Me too, guy. Savory's my thing. But at, but at the same time, you enjoy you know sweet tarts, gummy oh, bears. Yeah. I'll you eat know, gummy some bears of and Skittles all day. But I mean, I'd rather have a piece of ribeye. You know, if I was to pick between that, those two things. Of course, you know, in different situations, you're gonna want whatever you like. But back to like developing a, you were going you were going somewhere with that developing a taste, like for beer, for example, or. Or Cigars even like tobacco, yeah, whether yeah. It, you, yeah, you, tobacco. you've ever, I would say most people by the time they're adult have tried a cigarette or chewing tobacco or something. Those things are classic examples of nobody, I would think, could admit to you that they became a smoker or a dipper or a chewer based off the first taste experience or maybe even the second or third. Those are definitely acquired tastes and that could, I think that opens up a whole lot of different things that could be the taste itself or the fact that it gives nicotine gives you this feeling in your head and all these other things that then that gets coupled in with yeah, it. Yeah. I think cigarettes and if you were to leave the addictiveness qualities of things out, which that definitely plays a role in what you like and don't like. But I think even if you left that out, let's say of cigars, people still like, like them. Like I, I like to smoke a cigar from time to time. Um, but I don't like sit around and just think about when I can get my next one. But I have noticed my taste for it. It is what we call an acquired taste. Has I've gotten better at not just you know putting smoking a cigar and being like ugh, ugh you know spitting it out. It's I kind of like it more the more and I think it's just getting familiar with it uh, and you you find things to look for in that or like whiskey maybe would be a good a better example to use more you could relate to better. I, I think anything that. I, w I wish we had a rainbow version for taste. And I guess you could draw one out, say things are sweet and then they're sour and then they're bitter. And for some reason, in my mind's eye, it seems to be the sweeter is the more simple side of things. Meaning you, I don't think you ever hear of anybody saying, you got to learn to like cake. You've got, you've got to <laughs> acquire true. a taste of Coca-Cola. Those things I think aren't, but those aren't acquired. Those are just, I think you like them. Your body knows you like sugar and need sugar because that's what runs everything. It's all turned into, you know, glucose. Right. And so you're, you're I think any animal would like, I think that's going to be more, that's not an acquired taste. That's something that everything just likes. Well, and. It's a more basic thing. I've, I've thought a lot about this. And if you think about food in, in this particular vein of our taste conversation and, and what makes people the way they are. Outside of something natural, if we're talking about Kentucky Fried Chicken or your local deli's burger or uh, anything processed for sure, every one of those things has been ran through test after test. After they have all been mm -hmm. designed to grab human taste buds. So it, 
especially the big big restaurants like McDonald's well, well, and whatnot. But even things like, you know, whether it be a, a Kit Kat or a Hershey bar or oh, anything, yeah, yeah. Yeah. everything that's manufactured has been manufactured to be. But even in nature, oranges, for example, uh, from my understanding of the origination of the orange tree and citrus, wouldn't be, if, if you had an orange off the original, you know, tree that they started mm-hmm. this with, you would find it maybe not even edible. So. Right. Like I read something a while back about apples. Um, like the variety of apples, let's say the founding fathers of the United States, like the apples they a- eat or ate, you can't even experience that because those strains don't even exist anymore. It's been designed out of existence. Like what we have now, so many varietals of apple, but there's really nothing that was like what they were having. So it's hard to draw across. But it's the same way with lots of food that that's that we. Those things we have taken advantage of what people do and don't like, and we've created things that we have bred it. Like, wasn't corn originally just grass seed or something, and it was genetically bred over time to turn into corn or something? So the idea of that, anyway, goes along with what you're saying. I, I know from uh, similar conversations, and I've either read or heard uh, podcasts or just interviews about this idea of food and you know it's a hot topic now because there's everybody has their own uh, pigeonhole they want to be in paleo vegan uh, whatever these versions are so there's a lot of food conversations and in those conversations about the what you're supposed to eat and what you're supposed to have the those original things anything that we have been able to manipulate for for better yield but not only that for better taste because every bit of this is some kind of commodity somebody's making money off of it and bluntly everybody's going to buy more if it tastes better what you said just brings up an interesting idea which i was looking at a day or so ago like people i think we've talked about it before too listening to something like or a person they don't like but they listen to it anyway um but people don't always choose things that they necessarily prefer they get something that maybe they think people want them to choose or, or could be um they're getting what they think they should get you know whether it's something that they like like your preference choice consistency like how how consistent is the things you do or you you um take part in or eat how much of it really is based on what you like versus what you think you should like or what you think is good for you i think in, in terms of i can think back to my childhood and i don't know why this was the case for me um but as a picky child, your parents are always trying to get you to try more things, whether that's some kind of bribery or, you know, whatever, you know, the way it is to raise your kids and try to get them to expand their palate just to make it, if anything, easier to eat at places and they're easier to prepare things at home. And I remember, for whatever reason, I might be more apt to explore things if I were not at home. Like if I went and stayed with a friend or went on vacation with a friend. I might be more apt to try something different than the same old environment of your own loving family saying, why don't you try a salad or why don't you do this? But there's, I don't know if it's because you've built that fortress up of always wanting to resist that, but change of environment can actually, doesn't change your palate because it's still, it was still like an exploration for me and something that I was kind of reaching out there and leaning into. It was not something I felt natural to do but I was less apt to uh, fight that. And I've seen that with my own kids, with whether it be their taste in food or other things, there's something about getting out of the routine you're in kind of creates part of this, who you are. And I think that goes into this whole thing where we're talking about the taste, whether that's in food and sound or whatever, you, 
you might be able to step out into and listen to, well, you've never listened to that before. Why are you listening to that now? Well, their parents were playing that. They had some old records of, you know, some old jazz or whatever. Well, you've never wanted to listen to that when I've done it. For whatever reason, when you're in a different scenario, it makes you more open to, to new things. And I think, you know, when kids go to college, I would say that's a lot of times mm-hmm. when, when changes happen. And um, you're more apt to explore different things. And I know that I can go down a rabbit hole for a lot of things, but I mean, in the vein of taste and all that we're talking about, yeah. I, I remember that's when my palate opened up a whole lot more. Part of that goes back to what you said earlier about is that you, what you, are you doing what you're doing because you think that's what you should do? And I would see how other people aren't as maybe narrow as I am about that. I'm like, all right, I, I just need to open the doors more and try this or that more that I've never tried. Have you ever noticed or experienced the opposite? Like you were talking about you were you were more apt to try things away from home. Well, what about trying things that you knew by eating it, your parents would like heap appraisal upon you? Like, I don't know, you didn't, let's say you didn't like Brussels sprouts or something like that, but you knew if you ate it, your parents would be proud of you and be happy or, or whatever. You know, it doesn't have to be food. It could be anything. You just, so you would eat it just for the appraisal of that. And then over time, Maybe it's kind of like that acquired thing. The more you're familiar with it, the more things you can look for in the taste of that Brussels sprout. Then maybe you'll start eating cabbage or whatever. Did you ever notice or have you ever experienced that or do you think that's just something else? No, sure. I I have, I can't recall a specific memory of myself doing that, but I've actually heard my kids. I did this or I did that. and, And the whole thing was basically they did something that they normally don't do or somewhat against, and it was almost like, hey, look at me, I'm eating this thing, or I'm doing this thing I don't normally do, give me some kind of acknowledgement. So I, I definitely think there's something to that, that there is... Um, and then they get in the rebellious phase. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Right. There's a reward for things, and that is generally why we do most things we do, and that reward could be a social reward, or that re- reward could be like it is for so many things, and that's dopamine. Because it's, it's what makes us do what we do. It's so why you, we eat, have sex, or whatever that is. Dopamine dumped. and It definitely it, drives everything, for right. sure. I guess it's more of a quick, complex question would be, the, it may not be the thing that you like in and of itself. Maybe it's the results you get from experiencing the thing, like music. Like some people think it's so, like, you know, some people listen to um, whatever popular music there is just to be cool. Like I know in, in school, my... <clears throat> When I got to high school, I was introduced, you know, I moved from middle school where everybody listened to whatever was popular, Criss Cross or Vanilla Ice or whoever was the rap, the I call it bubblegum pop type stuff that everyone likes as a kid. When I got to high school, it wasn't cool to like all that stuff. You know, the right. the, the older kids um, who you do, who you know, who you look up to, they like things like um, the Grateful Dead or they introduced you to Leonard Skinner or, you know, the Beatles or, or whatever, um, that type of music. So, you know, Led Zeppelin. And this was in the 90s. You know, I was I was in middle school in the early 90s, and I started high school in 94. So those were old things, but they were more of a connoisseur type thing. So it, was, it wasn't cool to listen to the pop stuff anymore, at least in certain circles, which we can talk about that in a second as well. The more intelligent people seem to like things that are more of an acquired taste, and that could be for a lot of reasons. So I would start listening to those things just to see if I liked it, first of all. But, you know, I wanted to be accepted in that group. So I was like, no, I don't, I don't listen to... I don't know. I can't remember pop candy, right. you know, candy gum pop stuff. 
from the nineties, like, no, I'll have like Led Zeppelin and I'll, you know, I'll pull up into school in the morning with like um Stairway to Heaven playing or or something like that, or um Low Rider from the seventies. That was one of my favorites. I would have, instead of having it to the hit station. You know, you're you you are doing it to make someone else happy or you know, you're but you're still getting that dopamine reward because you think you're getting accepted into a group rather than um really enjoying the music but maybe over time you because I, I noticed over time i did start liking that stuff and i started looking for more things like that that i would like and now you know taste of music is broad but I, I attribute all that to just wanting to like what people i looked up to liked rather than actually liking it off the start and i think the um an older brother or sister um or older or classmates you know so, you know all the time mm-hmm. you're in high school you're in usually classes with varying ages at least some of them and or uh, play on a ball team or whatever, most people, and this is not a golden rule, but I would say a lot of people, coming back to that thing we are talking about how you learn and you mirror, you look up to people that are older than you, whether that be adults or even older kids, or you know, be the seniors when you're a freshman or whatever, and you know they're definitely going to be the cooler people in the school than the, any of the freshmen for sure, and there's this tendency to look up toward people, and as you look up toward these other groups and how they're respected, Maybe you're juxtaposing that respect or the idea of that on you if you take on, you know, you know, we all listen to whatever's the current thing as eighth graders and now we're in ninth grade and we're still doing that. But, you know, <laughs> all those seniors are big into the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or just all that, you know, classic mm-hmm. stuff that's, you know, not here now necessarily, not that those things ever go away because every generation finds their roots with their favorite uh, decade or whatever it may be. I don't know that those things are just necessarily found innocently or on their own. There's some bridge, and I think the bridge a lot of times is socially. And that might even come from somebody in the family. It may not necessarily be, you know, looking up to the seniors. But if you had an older brother or sister or an uncle that really liked Jimmy Buffett, well, Jimmy Buffett's not exactly uh, somebody in his own words. He doesn't get tons of radio airplay, but an incredibly successful musician that has crossed many uh, decades and decades of d- different people being around, and I've been to a handful of his concerts. You'll find grandparents all the way down to mm-hmm. you know five and six year olds at these concerts, mainly because his music is fun and easy to go on and understand and things like that. But there, there probably was something that crossed the bridge for everybody involved, whether that's family, friends, or other. That I would say highly unlikely that anybody distanced uncover these things on their own finding something new like we we're talking about novelty or whatever it's it's easy you know things that are easy to listen to you know stuff like that you just listen to something because it's easy and kind of like tv shows we've talked about um you're not a huge fan of rewatching old shows you like to see new things you know new experiences which i do too i like new experiences as well um but your taste in like shows um you know, you like as you change. Like I've said this to you before, as you change as a person, like your taste and things change as well. Or the show may be different. I do watch shows over to get to that. I do watch shows a lot over and over again, and I wonder if that's just me being like it's easy to watch the same show because I know I'll like it and I'll watch it again. But it's interesting because you know, like I say, you change as a person, so the show is kind of different to you when you rewatch it. But the hesitation though, like to watch a new show, like you're, oh, I got to go watch this new show, and will I like it? It just it's like it's more effort to go out and find new things um versus rewatching something or re listening to a song you know you like or putting in an album that you know you like versus the effort of going out and finding 
like new stuff. I think it's you know it's easier to listen to the old stuff and repeat it over and over than to go out and find new stuff. And I I don't know. It's a very interesting idea of that sort of protection of what is familiar, because I'm not sure um, if that's unique to any situation. Because I I mean I I think most people. I think I think everyone is that to a degree. Now, I don't think everybody has the same amount of protection to that because I think there are definitely more people that when you tell them, hey, go check out this new show, there are going to be those that jump on that, and there's going to be those that are, are slower to warm to that because of these individual tastes. And I don't know uh, where or why we possess those things. I I think I have I have a tendency to be very locked into things, but in the last fifteen years have just been way more open to um, stepping outside of all the old familiar. I have the old familiar shows and and music that I listen to, but a good reinforcement of that is thinking about something else that you know one of your newest familiars, if you will. When, well, you had to step out to find that one or that show or that taste or that food. So then that's kind of a reinforcement. All right, I've got to kind of open the taste back up again and see what else. Um, I find depending on what it is, if we're talking about, say, for example, a podcast, I become very critical. Whereas before, I don't think I was as critical. But now I'm in, I'm, I hate to use this phrase because it, I, I don't believe it of everyone. And I'll use it myself even that is I only have so much time implying that my life is so busy I just can't cram any more things into it. And at one time I didn't feel that way because I don't think my life was that way. And when I, I would hear that, I would think, what are you people talking about? You're just unorganized or whatever. But now I'm at a point now with job, wife, and children and their lives, I literally feel like there's not much more I can cram into my life. Something's got to get rooted out for something else to take in a new place. So my right. listening... Feels like a lot more work doing something new, especially a TV show, a book series, or a podcast. Rather than, of course, you don't really listen to podcasts, I'd imagine. Um, but I guess people do some. Whereas, if you just want to sit down on the couch and unwind or whatever, putting on a familiar show like Andy Griffith or The Sopranos or whatever or your the preference office. is. Yeah, The Office is a big one. People, my wife, Parks and Rec, watched The Office probably seven hundred ninety-eight times. Um, it would be interesting to um, interview, you know, a number of folks and ask them. What what is your familiar in in this vein of what we're talking about right now? I mean, what in food we all call it comfort food, and, and I'm gonna bridge into this about what food I will take to work and what I don't in a minute. And I know several people that this is one of those first world problems, but where we probably grew up with a television in our room, and or at least developed into young adults maybe with televisions around our sleep pattern. As bad as this may be, this is what people do. But there are people who have uh, sleep safe shows, meaning it, it it falls into this, what I would call the comfort food, if you will, of television, whereas it's probably something they've seen a hundred times or, you know, whether it's Friends, The Office, Parks and Rec. Those three are the ones I hear people talk about the most that they just need it to be on, whether they were a person who just needs the TV on in the house or they needed to be on to go to sleep or whatever, because they, they know all the stories about them. There's nothing new that's going to glue them in, but yet it's a constant stimulation. Comfort blanket or security right. blanket. And, and that, that goes into this comfort level that people have with food. And I've got kind of a different take on that, not so much that I have to have comfort with my food at work. But if we're having 
something new or something different, or if I have something that really is something I truly enjoy, I will ask for it not to be given to me as my lunch work be- mm. because um, as great as my job is, and I'm glad I have one, but it is, it is a place of great stress, mm-hmm. and I do not want to cross-contaminate certain favorites with that really high stress place. That and, makes sense. And, That's definitely association of negatives. Right. Mainly because with the type of job I have, I don't necessarily have a set lunch time where I get to right. warm up food and eat it hot and all that. The way that it works at my job is I get to heat it up and I get to eat it when I can eat it and work around the things that are around me. So that taints things to me and that cause and that's an <laughs> improper thing, but food is an experience to a certain degree. In reality, it's nutrition, but in the modern day and time, it also is an experience and it's a dopamine pathway and all other things. And I don't want to mix negative emotions or stressful emotions with pleasurable ones. Now, at the same time, you know, the base pizza, which I would say everybody, every human alive, whether they have a diverse or a picky version of pizza, everybody likes pizza. It's probably on their list of favorite things. It's got to be the most universally liked. I Absolutely. do know someone who doesn't like it, but I don't want to be exclusionary. You're right. So, I, you know, I, I will take that, uh, and I have that, had that at work several times, and that may be because it functions hot, it functions cold, but it's not special. It's good, but it's just, it's not necessarily right. what I'd call special. You can, you won't draw associations across, but it also makes me think that's interesting. Um, with a job like we have the exact same job, literally, um, where you're, you're mentally engaged and you've always got to have your RAM processing at max capacity to look for things. You can't make a mental mistake it, or if you do, it's not forgiving. Um, you've got to constantly be on guard. It, it's a lot easier just to have a comfort food. You're not, you know, whereas if it was something new or maybe even something complex, I guess complexity wouldn't matter as much if you were super familiar with it. You want that familiarity because you're not taking up more RAM in your brain right. trying something new because you only have so much while you're on the job. And like you said, we don't sit down and eat. It's kind of on the go. And you're, you're always, you've got 100 windows open in your head all at the same time. And that would be one more window, one more thing. Uh, and besides the fact that if, it was something new and you were trying it at work you, and you had that negative association with it, then you might not like it ever again. And it um, changes the experience. Right. And so you definitely, I would like new food. I'm kind of the same way. I definitely wouldn't want to try new food at work. For example, I, I know you knowing you well enough that um, you're a person of, of higher taste than me even. Um, whether that's, you know, that we can get it into the In episode. <laughs> we can get into episode 1A of this. But so I know when you grill or when you smoke something or if it's you and your wife, you know, preparing a meal or whatever, I know it's going to be good, but this is where I'm going with this. If you had brought with you today and, you know, I was going to go to work today and you said, here, I've I've got you an entire plate. I would not take your plate of food with me to work. Not because I don't trust you. I know it's going to be clean and all that's going to be fine. And I know with a 90% accuracy, I'm going to enjoy it. Um, But the problem is, like you said, there's a certain amount of processing that you have to do mm-hmm. or thinking about what you're taking in or your, whether that's just the experience of it. When you're just shoving stuff in, whether it's fast food or just the same old ham and cheese you always have, there's, there's no, it is just nutrient. That's really all the work, lunch, or meals should really be based about, unless you're one of these people who has like an hour and a half lunch and that's your lifestyle. Well, you know what's 
really interesting and it's kind of flies in the face of everything we're saying. Um, I have experienced a lot of new things at work, um, like podcasts and books, and it could just be because that's when I have the time to do those things. Um, I've listened to them at work rather than at home because when I'm off work, I don't usually listen to books. I'm usually doing other things, staying busy. So maybe that has something to do with it. Um, and it could be that food's different. That would also be something interesting to look at. People who um, are more likely to look for that novelty, let's say, with food, or well, or the other way, they're more likely to look for a change in something in food, but they're not willing to listen to new music, or they don't want to look at new TV shows, or they like new TV shows constantly, or a new book, or a new podcast, or whatever, but they won't stop eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or whatever i do know somebody and maybe it's on the you know i don't think this person is autistic or on the on the spectrum but i know somebody who only eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and doritos but i don't wonder what their other preferences are like do they it's listen a grown to, person yeah it's a grown that has the same is in the same profession as us um but i wonder what that person's music how it has changed their preference in music and tv shows and books and all things preferences of cars and i wonder how that has changed because obviously their food intake hasn't changed um i don't think they're linked but i do think that a person be interesting to look at who who might have a real guarded food palate may be more guarded about their other things but i'll be honest in general probably if a, a person who's never been called a picky eater it's not there, there may be an element of, of not willing to explore, although I, I was willing to explore jumping my bike off of a picnic table and all kinds of other things. So I don't think it's physical. Right. I don't think it was necessarily unwillingness to, to try something different, but it literally was to so many things just tasted gross. And I think um, I've often wondered, you hear about super tasters and things like that. I wonder if really picky people aren't those super tasters that what they taste and their, their ability to pick up on texture is so much more enhanced yes, than anybody else. Because, uh, as I've grown older and found out that, you know, essentially what picky means, a lot of that is consistency of the food and not necessarily the flavors of the food. Yeah. For example, I don't enjoy onions. Um, I love onions. I, I, and I'm cognitive, uh, you know, I'm aware that many adults and lots of people love onions. So it's not a lack of information. And I don't know that I'm necessarily uh, opposed to the flavor of onions that are in food, but it, I definitely do not want to bite into a burger and have that crunchy sensation that mm. is, is of an onion. But yet I love crisp lettuce. I was about to say, as, what about as bizarre, as, as bizarre as that may, or, or cucumbers, eating one of those. Well, I've had this conversation as an adult with people. Because I get called a wuss all the time because I don't eat, like, I don't like spicy stuff. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, I should rephrase that. I don't like extremely spicy stuff. Yeah, you like jalapenos, right? I'll eat them, um, but they're a lot stronger to me. And I think we should know this with our biology background, but I just don't remember it. I think it must be that I'm more sensitive to the, to the um, capsaicin or maybe I have more receptors in my mouth to detect spicy things because... Some of this stuff people eat, like it just, I, I don't see how they can eat it. It's like, and I don't, it's not that I don't like, I think the level of spiciness, there's a knob that's turned up in my, either in my brain or on my tongue. And I can detect that a lot. I'm more sensitive to it than other people. My my best friend, um, I, we we argued about this all through the um, our 20s because, you know, all people come over to the house and we're grilling out, you know, they 
put stuff on there and you know they're turning it up putting hot sauce on it like well, I only it's need the a hottest you'll bit. eat yeah it's like i only need a little bit and i get i think i get the same i think it goes along with what you're saying like they're maybe they're more sensitive to it and i think that could affect somebody being like an acquired taste as well as connoisseur i mean they never could get past the bitterness of beer um, or cigar or whatever they're maybe they're so sensitive to it they'll never try it again i know um, my wife's grandfather hated beer and he never would get into it and i think it's funny when people um say well, i don't like beer or you know I just don't like it or you know whatever because there's so many different types of beer that's something like you don't like but i guess people do don't like wine there's a million different kinds it's not all the same um but where i was going with that is maybe they're just more sensitive to some of the bitters in it and it's tough for them to get past that which has fostered another thought in me so i have two really good friends that are both what you would call neither the uh, prefer sweets. Um, they eat them. They eat things that are of sweet, you know, but they're not, they're not going to always take dessert. They may not necessarily choose this or that, or they may avoid certain ones because they're just quote, too sweet. Perhaps those people who prefer the savory are somewhat hypersensitive. And because I can relate. So, uh, you know, one of my hobbies is running and racing and ultras and things like that. And one of the foods that, that's just the most portable are, are what they call gels. And you carry these things around and it's just some sort of maltodextrin or some uh, glucose, sucrose, comp, some kind of combination of basic, some kind of sugar or complex sugars in a little pouch. Squeeze these things in your mouth and swallow it. And you do that ever so often just to keep, you know, nutrients in your body. And it's just the most efficient way to carry around because it's hard to carry, you know, a grocery sack while you're running 30 or 50 miles. With that being said, most of all race nutrition I'm aware of, unless it's some real picky person or a vegan person who makes their own race stuff, all these things are sweet. Well, so I've consumed a lot of these over the years of doing a lot of the races, and I, I will be at a sweet overload that even knowing what's, quote, good for me, you know, uh, some sort of electrolyte drink, Powerade, Gatorade, whatever brand is your preference, all those things are sweet. Every, no, nobody would disagree how sweet they are. But after being, you know, in a race where I've had to consume these gels for three, six hours or however many, to then consume an electrolyte product afterward just to kind of help keep electrolytes and fluids back in my body, it's like drinking straight syrup. It Because I, I suppose it's just because I've been inundated with sweets for hours and hours and hours and literally had nothing else, no other real foods to speak of, not a lot of calories in general, but it creates this hypersensitivity in me that's like this taste, but yet it will be something familiar, you know, blue Powerade, which I'd have plenty of, you know, throughout my life at some point in time and could drink right now and be like, oh, yeah, it's sweet. It's Powerade. But after that, it just tastes like pure syrup of pure, you know, like, a mouthful of sugar. Talking about like after a race or something? Right. Like after you've been exposed to that for so long. It so what do you do instead of the Powerade? I will, I will choke a certain amount of that down just because I know right. it's going to kind of help get my body into recovery mode and then try not to overload myself with water, which, which is the only right. thing I really prefer at that point because it doesn't have any flavor to it. Um, you still, you've sweated all electrolytes right. out. So so you, you, yeah, you can't flush too much with water because that right. runs into another problem. But I just found that interesting that something, uh, you know, pick a Gatorade flavor or whatever. But then, uh, so then you run this experiment. With, you know, I, I would imagine if we were to take a road trip and you were to consume these gels at the rate I was doing that, and then at the end of this, I said, all right, now drink your favorite Gatorade. You're going to say something along the same lines. It's like, wow, this is like super duper sweet. All that to say, I wonder if that's how these people who don't prefer sweets, that's how it tastes the first time if they were to buy a Snickers 
or uh, you know at your birthday party they had a piece of cake or whatever they're like yeah because at that point i can relate it's like no no that, that stuff's really too sweet i don't know it's, i do prefer but i like sweets also so i wouldn't be a good candidate in the study um because I, I could I, boy i could drink some coca-cola um and i'm not i would drink rc or pepsi or whatever i do prefer coca-cola I could drink 50 of those every day to a certain extent. After a while, it's like, no, I don't want any more of this. But I prefer savory in general. Like, I would much rather, there are people who would much rather go out and get their calories, get a piece of triple chocolate fudge cake. Um, I would much rather have a huge ribeye, huge fatty ribeye or whatever. If I was to pick between the two, most of the time, I'd want one of the one of, one of the other. Something else I wanted to, we briefly touched on it earlier, something I want to talk about before we run out of time. I read an interesting article, knowing that we're going to talk about this in the podcast, um, from a lady. Um, her last name is Beck. She interviewed a guy named Tom Vanderbilt, and they were talking about this. And this is something that's always perplexed me, talking about um, your preferences and your um, what you like and don't like. We've talked about it before a little bit with like hate watching or hate listening to shows. Right. We talked about it with Howard Stern, how there were studies that showed more people listened more often and longer that couldn't stand Howard Stern than people who actually liked him. And we've talked about it a little bit and always, always found it crazy why that would be so. And I find it even so with myself. Um, I think obviously you can't argue that that's not true in today's world of politics. Like I know my friends on the right who don't necessarily like Trump, but don't hate him, you know, at the same time, don't know as much of what's going on, but and was, I guess this was the same truth during Obama and the Bush years, but boy, the people on the left or even moderates who don't like Trump can't get enough of listening and watching him and just hating on him. And I've always tried to figure out what that is. Like, seems like it would be the, the opposite. Thing? Yeah. Like, like you don't protect yourself from the things you don't like, but I think it becomes sort of a, uh, us versus them, which is, uh, talked a lot about in that audio book. I listened to not long ago, the coddling of America or American minds. And it, really divulged into the idea of when this idea of us versus them takes seed and matures, what that turns into this sort of, it it explains a little bit about this, what we're talking about. And and I think that when you're looking at the other group, when you're talking about these things that are dichotomous, when the other group is viewed like the enemy and not just a different choice of flavor of politics or whatever, but when it's viewed that vehemently, you want to be aware of every one of your enemy's moves. And not so much of what your team is doing, but you really want to be aware. I even joked, I would say, you know, like during Obama's time, I would say Fox News is probably, you know, garnering a whole lot more eyes than it even is right now. Maybe, because there was, it's, yeah. it, it's easy to be the, the hater team and to create the investigations and all that versus when it's the, quote, their side but kind of thing. But if everything is driven on dopamine release and pleasure and reward pathway, it's just, it's 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 interesting to me. And finally, after reading this article, the guy Tom Vanderbilt put his finger on something that I thought was it was kind of like an aha moment for me. Um, it was really interesting. And what he said um, was he couldn't you know really speak to it, but his theory was maybe neurologically maybe some of those pathways are similar, whether it's extreme hate or extreme love. Maybe they're firing kind of in the same way and your brain processes out which one is which. And maybe you don't know that you, you're getting some kind of pleasure from it just because it's crackling up there in your head and you're getting some kind of pleasure from super hating something. 
um, or something annoying you, you're getting still getting that reward pathway, even though you don't like it necessarily. Or maybe something that he said was there's, or maybe it was the interviewee, um, Beck, I can't remember her first name, but it was Beck. She said maybe there's some kind of righteous anger is how she phrased it, which I thought was genius. Like you're sitting there arguing with them, pounding your fist on your steering wheel, you know, you're getting some pathway because you think morally you're better than that person, whether it's Howard Stern, Obama, um, um, Trump or who, or whatever. Right. Um, you're getting this feeling of reward because you're morally superior to that person. So you listen to it constantly and you're getting that reward from being better than them over and over. And I thought, wow, that's an aha thing. Like, you know, you have this moral superiority and I've always wondered that's something I've always, ever since when I was a teenager and I heard people listen to Howard Stern more when they didn't like him and longer, I was like, why do they do that? And that's perplexed me forever. And finally, when I read this, this interview, um, which I'll, we can put a link to or something. Um, it's kind of like an aha moment for me. I was like, well, that's really interesting. Do you find yourself looking backwards? Ever think you've done that? Oh yeah, for sure. Because after, after, um, after knowing that, just like we were just talking about just now, um, I would think, well, do I do that too? And I come to find out, yeah, I kind of do that. I do do that. Like during whichever um, president, I'm like more fixed on what's going on rather than um, if it's so a party that leans one way or the other, I'm more drawn to. I'm kind of more attuned to the enemy or the other person. It's kind of like at, when you're, um, and that kind of goes along also maybe with um, what you were saying, like when you're out in public, I'm not so much aware of people around me who I don't perceive as threats or different, um, but people who are different or maybe can be perceived as threats, I'm more aware of what they're doing and and why they're doing that. And I don't know what that has to do with preference or taste or anything, but maybe the two are tied together. Um, I I don't know, but it's interesting to think about for sure. Yeah. That their analysis of that, um, I think the love and hate being tied together and, so and or, neurons firing that yeah. they're very similar it is, has been proven to be true that uh, people sometimes will mistakenly say the opposite of love is hate. And that is not true. I've, I've heard this more properly observed and the opposite of love is nothing. That article was in a publication. Maybe it's just online called the Atlantic. Her name is Julie Beck, um, but the yeah. guy's name is Tom Vanderbilt and he, had a book they referenced, which I'm really interested in finding, and maybe we can put a link to that as was well. Was it on preferences, or was it more specific to these love-hate things? The article in general? Yeah. It was the, the title of it was The Complex Psychology of Why People Like Things, and it was just kind of a back and forth. I read a condensed version, but I guess in, in that journal, if I paid for it, I could read the whole, the whole article. Um, but it was really interesting. It talked about a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Um, nothing really super light bulb that you didn't already know, but it um, definitely added to what we were talking about. We definitely, if somebody's interested in that topic, I would recommend looking that up. You could probably just Google the complex psychology of why people like things. But I'm going to try to get that guy's book if it's on Audible and maybe listen to it because he had a lot of interesting insight into it. Tom Vanderbilt was his name. One of the things that when you and I originally discussed this idea as far as a topic to talk about, we mentioned, um, or maybe we kind of had a mini episode, if you will, on the phone that day, and that was the idea of, in a very crude sense, every one of us is, is made up of nurture and nature. The uh, nature being obviously your DNA coming from your parents and in and, and your family tree, and the nurture being how you were raised by that family, and you could even say your community, whether that be you're involved in a church or within the school system you're in or both, and 
But that led me, immediately led me to thinking like if you could, you know, isolate or, or kind of do some sort of cohort study and, and look at information, twins immediately came to my mind because you and I, you know, as humans, we're obviously very similar. We're probably a very similar background. If we both compared our ancestry.com, they're going to be somewhat similar. Um, but the most similar that you could get in, in a human experiment would be, yeah, brother and sister. I have a sister. We could, you know, and our, and our taste varies widely, but some could say, well, it's a boy and you're a girl and you're, uh, you're 15 months older. But so I thought of a twin. So I contacted a twin I knew and I asked her, you know, I kind of told her what we were talking about. And she told me in, in a summary, basically what I have seen in the ones I have grown up with and what you may even see, which is represented in, in television shows and movies, which we all know, you know, most of the time art imitates life and vice versa. These aren't just made up. And that is even within twins who are genetically identical creatures raised in this case, they're both raised by the same parents. They were different from the very beginning one had tastes that were a little bit more subdued and the other had tastes that you know when you compare like as toddlers or as infants i don't know that she could remember far enough back to to get into the very uh, a whole lot of detail at least early childhood yeah but but like uh, her sister was the louder one her sister seemed to be in a lot of ways that you would have it described and I'm not saying her sister was asking for attention and nor was she in this, but I'm just saying in a stereotypical sense, you, you hear of the person who's louder, who's trying to draw more attention to herself. So there was the one was that way and one was the other. Now you could even say, well, maybe they both are going to be that way, but whoever was the second to react just didn't want to look like the other one. Cause I've thought about this a lot in, in going over the information she gave me and preparing for this thinking, well, do twins, end up being opposites because you look the exact same if there's any way that you can separate yourself that's got to play into it absolutely yeah. and, and not all twins have necessarily bad relationships just like all siblings don't have bad relationships so it, so it's not like you're trying to separate yourself from that person because of it's a bad thing but there's a unique identity that you're trying to develop as a human being and their tastes were similar in a lot of ways but there definitely were two different people. So I, I find that interesting. And not that this was going to be anything earth shattering because anybody who's ever been around twins knows other than looking the same and maybe sounding the same. But even as they get older, they don't ever sound exactly the same. There's even the slot variations in their vocal cords that they had different taste in, in uh, their spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, that those vary greatly where, um, my friend said that, you know, she picked this certain type of guys that were typically what you would characterize more quiet and her sister would pick the more outgoing or the louder or maybe more rambunctious or rebellious even or the type that she were drawn to. And again, nothing in this was earth shattering. I was just kind of wanting to get a literal that twins is, point of view. That is interesting. At first, I think it seems more complex. Then maybe it is, but it's definitely interesting that they would have, especially an early, I would want to know like an early childhood before they've been tainted by experience. Because I would think that a lot of those things could just be explained by experience. Now, maybe some things are like we're talking about nature versus nurture. They are naturally, but if they have the exact same DNA, I don't see how it could be different. Right. But maybe one just had a positive experience by being louder or whatever, or a positive experience 
trying one thing, which led to trying to another, which led to trying to another, or, you know, a positive experience with one type of person, whether the the boyfriend, I think you said they were female, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like the boyfriend they picked, um, maybe positive or different experience with whatever. I think it all builds upon itself and your preferences, like we said earlier, kind of get sophisticated over time. You know what you're looking for. I think maybe it could be explained that way, but definitely as far as early childhood, I'd want to know that. Or if there's something like, I don't know, like if one of them absolutely loves pickles and genuinely loves it. It's not like we were saying earlier, they just say they like it because right. they want to they be different. But then one can't, like takes a bite of it and throws up. That would be super interesting to me to to want to figure out why. That would help shed some light on a lot of this. Yeah, maybe if we, if we do a uh, specific follow-up to this, Maybe touch on some very specific things from their childhood and just ask, you know, compare and contrast, you know, you know, were there specific foods that you did not like at all that she also didn't like or the fact that maybe she did like them. Um, right. And genuinely liked. Of course, you know, people remember things differently, too. Like That's true. Maybe one person thinks they liked it, but they just acted like they like it because they got something positive from their grandma, you know, and the other one didn't like it. And they say they got they got that positive feedback from their grandma for eating their Brussels sprouts. Right. So they started eating them and then like it grew from there. And then they maybe did start actually learning how to like it. And then that led on to eating, of course, Brussels sprouts. I shouldn't have started with, but, you know, broccoli because Brussels right. sprouts are the hardest to me to, to like. I do like them, but they are the most bitter vegetable to me. But, you know, they start off on, let's say, lettuce to broccoli to Brussels sprouts or whatever. And that allowed them to like that now, whereas the other ones still won't eat vegetables at all. That would be, I just wonder if you could tie it back to something as simple as that is, one day they ate one of them and the grandma was like, yeah. And they're, you know, as twins, as you said earlier, they're striving to be different perhaps or to get notoriety or something over the other one. I'm not saying it's malicious intent or anything, but that's just human nature. Maybe it's all derived from that. The, the more I think about this particular pair, it, it makes me think of other things. It would be interesting to have a conversation with twins from our medical background and think about and ask them, you know, kind of interview them and, you know, of course, protect everybody's privacy, but just to report on like twin, you know, twins that, uh, where one of them, for example, gets treated with for depression or anxiety or X, Y, Z, um, mental health related thing and how the other person either does or does not have any of those similar traits. Cause I can think about, um, certain medical situations that I happen to know both these ladies and even though they are genetically identical they both do not suffer from the exact same physical things in life which now thinking back on that is actually perplexing that you can start in the very beginning at nearly a, you know outside of minutes for birth the mm -hmm. exact same uh, you know ingredients going into this experiment called two humans and two entirely different things came out as far as one has this where the other does not. I think that definitely is just an approver of um, Nurture's Real. Like, it it just shows, especially when you're talking about mental health. Now, And I'm talking more about a, a physical one that wouldn't, well, wouldn't was, be affected by Nurture. But It would seem like it'd be impossible. Like, if one had type 1 diabetes and the other didn't, then would that even be possible in an identical twin? And if so, that would be super interesting. I'm sure there's people listening, if we have any listeners that screaming like, because we didn't do a type of prep for identical twins, so we're just kind of flying here. But that, I mean, that could be a whole series, just talking about the differences and similarities between identical twins or siblings in general, but identical twins especially, to get to your point of what's supposed to be 
exact DNA. Now there may be some kind of DNA specialist say, actually, there's a certain percentage right. that's different. And, blah, blah, blah. And, that, and that very well may be the case. It may be in the case where just sitting in the room with you, we would call them identical, but someone would say, no, when you look at the telomeres of this one's length versus these, these are actually two different creatures. Because when you look at the DNA on a, the true DNA, look, m- me and you, the, like 99% of the strand is going to be identical. When to mine right, and your knowledge, yeah. we don't have any family together. So there's, there's a whole lot of quote similarities in some things, but yet you and I look entirely different, so forth and so on. So even though you might have quote the same double helix that gets drawn on a piece of paper at some point in time in the future, or maybe it's known now, it's just not what we'd call in our, you know, public scientific vernacular. They're not exactly identical. Right. Yeah. We, we just used to call them that. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things that once were thought of medically and scientifically to be X, Y, and Z. And now we all look back as like, yeah, that sure. You should have known that that's not the same because there's some new science that explains a new difference. Definitely warrants follow-up. I think we'll have to do that. But even in their, uh, her description of some of their taste in like colors that they varied so much. I mean, more that's more, interesting more, color more, preference right like uh the the one i know the best she she gravitates toward more like light greens and whites where her sister gravitates in her words more to red and black and and the choice of bold colors where her taste in those things is not that bold and, I, and again obviously after you I, you know hit some age but whether it's 12 or 10 and down, you are pretty much, I would say, in quote, a normal household where there's not some weird favoritism or something that I can't foresee. You know, I would think they're getting relatively raised the same. Now, once they get out and they have their own and one plays ball and one doesn't, now you're exposed to two different fields of friends and family and, and all that. So things become variable for sure. But in the beginning, it seems like such an identical starting point to have such a variance. The the DNA starting out at both at, at point zero, but yet li- yields such a, a variety of a product just makes me wonder, all right, they were nurtured similarly. You can't say identical because we weren't there. And, you know, uh, having, having two kids, I don't know that you actually talk to either one of them exactly the same. Right, it's impossible. But trying to with two that are the same age, the same sex, as far as getting ready and things like that, it would be done fairly similarly. But for to be such a variance and come out in the way they view their potential spouse and things like that, I don't know. There's there's some hidden factor here that neither you or I have necessarily uncovered in uh, 70 minutes. Perhaps. If I were just to take a stab at it, I would say maybe just the smallest, what seems like minutia or micro thing may have a bigger effect than you think going forward, amplified. Well, anything else to cover or you want to talk about about it? No, I mean, other than, you know, sometimes, anytime, whether I'm ever teaching a class or, or giving any kind of talk, often it's commented in, in uh, whenever you're criticized as a teacher, speaker, whatever, is what, how to do a take-home or what to take out of something. Not that you or I are preparing a lecture here for anybody other than anything, but hopefully entertainment. And that is just think about what your tastes are, how they are different, similar and similar to your spouse, your family or whatever, and how that really has made you who you are. And that's kind of where this whole idea ever came from to me is just thinking about 
who I am, how I'm different from people around me, my family, my spouse. And it really boils down to a lot of these things, which just made me question as to where they ever started. Um, could, you know, could they have been any different from me? Am I always going to be the way I am based on what I'm made of? Clearly we went into, you know, talking about our experiences and so many other things. And like you said, there could have been some really small experiences in the very beginning of somebody's childhood, whether they were with a friend or a family or someone who, for whatever reason, it encouraged their ability to want to open their palate up or their taste in whatever those things are that then would forever change the rest of their development. Yep. Because otherwise they would might have had a more closed mind to it. But exactly, just like the music I talked about from high school, how different you would be. You yep. could also go about and saying which is first, you know, which which changes which. Did your tastes and preferences, and whether you went with something you thought you liked or you didn't, which changed which? You know, which was first, the chicken or the egg kind of argument. That'd be very interesting. It's definitely something I think you should think about. Who, how has made you you your choices and your preferences, and whether or not you chose something you preferred or didn't prefer or you know as simple as just your taste how they've made you who you are that's that's very that's good that's interesting to think about and i mean it even plays into how you how you may have even found your spouse in my case a blind date at a concert so musical taste had to have tied us together from the very beginning or you know what you, you i mean that's ultimately what you know you take um i remember an eighth grade teacher telling us the idea of connection and when you grow up in a small town, and maybe it's not like this in everywhere in the country, but a small town in the South, you have your, you know, your team, your town loyalty, usually. You, you have your high school versus the, the rival high school. And his whole point in this was, I don't know if there was something going on at the time, but it was just telling us about the future and how what you look as something different now actually will be something that you're clinging to later. And then in the little town I grew up in, and we had the rival town, that we look down on and, and not a literal sense, but in terms of that rival and sports sense that, but then when you get out of this County and you go, his example was, you know, university of Tennessee, it was a big university for the state. And that's where he went. That was his example. Now you're in a part of this bigger pot of people. So now it's not so much you looking down on these people, but you might actually have a kinship with these people because now you're from the same County or even bigger than that. You, you go to a school and you're looking for people from the same state or you're in some other country and you're looking for people who from the United States and there's all these different rings that we put these concentric circles around our pigeonhole that we call us in that at some point you look at this ring versus that ring and sort of a difference. And then later on, that difference either is irrelevant or you just totally overlook it at all because now you're comparing two different subsets of things that what once was a difference in a separator now is a uniter. And I, I don't know, still remember that conversation to this day. Those things that you think make I you different. Of that before that's in, that is interesting. It makes you the same. That you know, you gravitate towards, and that so to parlay that into this, your taste in music, food, what you tolerate, what you love, what you hate, whether it's you know you you love to hate things or whatever that is, that's going to gravitate how you pick your spouse, how you look at your spouse, whether you guys have those in common or different. Maybe you, you even pick someone who has a lot of differences because you have that sort of love hate thing, and. I don't know. It has more of an impact on your entire life than you really think about when you just sit and think about all the things that you do and don't do and you like, and you don't like, and what makes you you besides the mirror. Definitely food for thought. I think if you boil it down to the most basic thing, that the basic definition of what is taste or personal preference, it 
rings home true with what you're saying because it's just what is taste this is just a way to filter the world it's a way to categorize things maybe in your mind what taste and preference are so it definitely shapes it one way or the other and i'm sure it's some sort of social safety net that where we do this by default like we we want to create uh, a safe zone where we're in a group with another part of our team whatever that team is you know literally a sports team your political team your religious team whatever that is you want to have support and you want people to back up whatever it is that you're talking about or your feelings are. And I don't think it's necessarily an ingrained thing to seek out things that are different. And I think that parlays over into this taste thing where we, we, you know, coming from a tribal community or uh, definitely more of a sense of community of the hundred, 200, 500 years ago, we're when less of a community since now than we ever were just because of the, nature of technology and how we construct homes and all in our part of the world. But uh, I think there's something in us to always want to find connections for the obvious and maybe not so obvious reason. For sure. Any last thoughts on your taste? I mean, my tastes are correct and yours are wrong. (laughs) What I say is good is the word. (laughs) I'll accept that. Sometimes I am wrong. But you can go into a huge tangent on that, too, whether it's right to judge people's taste or not. There's a whole other subject you could have a subset conversation over. But mine are still correct. I, I think that's that could definitely go into those uh, the political leanings and all that about can you tolerate things that are different than you? For example, I, I will listen to people who have their own uh, podcasts or read blogs and things of people who don't align with me whatsoever in, in terms of a political spectrum. But I'll overlook it because they're really informative to me or they're really entertaining more than anything. And I'm not saying this like I'm sort of, like I think highly of myself. That's a whole other topic where I have maybe some lacking. But I can just push that aside for the purpose of entertainment or whatever. And it, I don't let it like overshadow those things where. I think I, that's much more difficult for most people than it is for you. And I, I, I recognize that because you see people that. Um, get their feelings hurt when actors or teams or people espouse their views on things. And it really wrecks a lot of people because now they can identify with them. Yeah. If you're right wing. You might as well never listen to any type of your music, favorite musicians or actors <laughs> stance for the most part. Just listen to the music. <laughs> Just be entertained by it. We don't all have to agree on everything for sure. Words of wisdom. Right. Till next time. Seen a bunch of run-down no-horse towns Where the church is the backbone, loves and the plow And the five-string melodies grooving With the farm and rows where the roots run deep Beyond the noise of the busy streets Where the songs of the south are soothing When I hear the front porch picking down home rhythm ringing out I don't run from banjo music The sound of a memory brings me back To the bluegrass playing on my dad's A-track His pick-up man had been through it Getting 
through the day on scrugs and skags, booking a bales to those Tennessee jams. There's no other way that I'd do it. When I hear the front porch picking down home rhythm ringing out, I don't run from banjo music. Yeah. Sweet tea, come sound. 